Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature a talk from Edwidge Dantica from a Portland Arts and Lectures event on May 12, 2022. Dantica became a nationally recognized author almost instantly with her 1994 debut, Breath, Eyes, Memory. That novel was a national bestseller and an Oprah Book Club selection. Since then, she has gone on to publish more than a dozen books in multiple genres. Novels, short fiction, memoir, literary criticism, young adult and children's books. Many of which were bestsellers, including The Farming of Bones, The Dewbreaker, and Claire of the Sea of Light. In her talk, Dantica gives an intimate portrait of her life, from her childhood in Haiti to her immigration to Brooklyn as a young adult and beyond. Her talk is structured around her mother's diagnosis and treatment of cancer. It explores Dantica's life growing up in an extended family in two countries and the beauty and struggles this life brought her. She offers us a portrait of Haitian culture that reveals its beauty, joy, and strength rather than centering the tragedies that nation has suffered as is so often the case. In all, this is an inspirational talk about intergenerational and international families, migration, and holding multiple cultures within oneself. It gives a deeper understanding of Dantica as a writer and sheds important light on a culture often misunderstood here in the United States. I should note that Dantica's talk included slides, so you will hear her refer to them from time to time. Not to worry, she does a beautiful job filling in the blanks. Wow. Bonsoir, good evening. Tonight, what I thought I would do, I would want, I want to take you on a bit of a journey with me. There's some, uh, there's, there's a visual element to, to this, and we'll try to work our way through it. So we'll jump right in. When my mother was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer in the early 2014, every time she and I would go to a doctor more than once, she would ask me to give the doctor one of my books. I, I think she underestimated how embarrassing it was for me to seem to be bribing someone with something that was precious to me, that might be precious to all of you, but that they might consider absolutely worthless. So I would tell her I would, I'd do it, then we'd quickly move on to the next doctor and the next doctor and the next doctor. And as each one brought us more and more dire news, my mother just said, stop giving them the books. They're not worth your books. <laughs> but th the one doctor she insisted on was her oncologist, Dr. Blyden. And one day while I was drilling Dr. Blyden with my internet research-inspired questions, he interrupted me and, and pushed the, a cup uh, that, that he had that said, my degree is not from Google. And then he asked me what I do for a living. And I said, I'm a writer. My mother wanted me to give Dr. Blyden a copy of my 2007 memoir, Brother, I'm Dying. 
and which I describe, among other things, my mother's early years with my father, who had died of pulmonary fibrosis a decade before. My mother smiled as I handed Dr. Blyden the book, and she even smiled at Dr. Blyden's to observing medical students, who usually she would sort of scowl at because they were somewhat intrusive. As he walked out of the room that day, Dr. Blyden looked back at my mother, and I imagined him seeing her in a slightly different light. Until then, I hadn't quite understood the power of a moment like this, a moment where your apparent value rises in the eyes of someone else, especially someone with your life in their hands. And subsequent visits, though, Dr. Blyden never mentioned the book again. The last time my mother and I were in Dr. Blyden's office, we went to tell him that my mother had decided to stop chemotherapy and let nature take its course. Tell him it's up to God now, my mother told Satan Creole, using me yet again as her translator. After a long pause, the doctor agreed that her age, 78, the type of vigorous treatment she would need might be considerably, considerably reduce her quality of life. Lingering longer than this usual time with us, Dr. Blyden told us about a patient of his who was the same age as my mother and had the same diagnosis. That patient had also decided to stop treatment after one round of chemo. Where is she now? My mother asked after I had translated this to her. On a cruise, the doctor said. On a cruise, my mother asked not realizing that this was something that was possible for someone who was in treatment. Dr. Blyden had told us this, I realized, to show his support for my mother's choice, and for, my, and for that my mother seemed grateful. At least that other woman was feeling well enough to go on with her life, I imagined her thinking. As my mother and I were leaving Dr. Blyden's office that day, I heard him tell one of his medical students something that made me understand why my mother had made me a one-woman bookmobile on her behalf. That book was not just my book. It was a book we owned together. It was a communal book. This is a special woman, Dr. Blyden said, referring to my mother. She raised an author. My mother beamed. And her big, broad smile made me run a run from the doctor's office and shout irrationally to everyone in my path, especially since my parents were not crazy about me being a writer. But I still wanted to scream, my mother is dying, and I write books. So this is where our journey begins, communal histories, communal books. This is actually where, I, where my journey began. In Haiti, you see the map here of Haiti and the Dominican Republic to place it for some of those, for some of you who may not be familiar with um, where Haiti's placed. You, if you've been to Turks and Caicos, Cuba, you see the, the placing. But that cute baby is me um, with, the, with the mandatory bow that all small Haitian babies must have. And these are my parents. This is my mother. Um, and my father, and when when my mother was um, was sick, often she, my mother was very uh, sort of she was a control freak, really, and she really always wanted things done a certain way. So she wanted me um, when she was sick to take this picture to be 
colored, like to, I mean, we could have, now it could be done at a computer, but she wanted me to go to a place with the last old men in Little Haiti who sort of hand colored pictures. And when I took that picture in, the man thought that was me. <laughs> this is my parents on their wedding day. So we grew up, my parents and both, I grew up uh, during the dictatorship. This is, uh, the old man is Francois Duvalier, Papa Doc Duvalier and um, baby Doc Duvalier. And the only reason to have them in a slideshow would to explain why we ended up um, leaving Haiti. So my parents left during the dictatorship when I was this small. <laughs> and about these pictures, you know, every, um, they were, the cameras weren't so, um, you know, not everybody had a camera, so we, we had to go to professional studios, and Haiti was called Abraham's, to go, this is the one we went to, uh, to have uh, pictures officially taken. So when my parents left and moved to, to Brooklyn, New York, my dad when I was two, my mom when I was four, they left me at this age with my aunt and uncle. That's my uncle Joseph, who some of you, if you've read my memoir, Brother, I'm Dying, he is, um, he's the, that's the couple who raised me, my aunt, and, my aunt Denise and my uncle Joseph. And, and their house, as I was saying to, um, to the wonderful high schoolers at Woodburn High School today, um, I grew up in a house I, with full of young children whose parents had traveled abroad to work and they, in, so my uncle's house, uh, my aunt and uncle's house was a rotating home for children um, like us. So we had a, a kind of trio and that was the three of us, my brother Bob and my cousin Nick. Um, and there were, um, we, we read a lot of things together. They were, they were great readers, but of, visual, like comic books, and I loved Madeline. That was the very first book I ever read. I was given a copy in French by, by my uncle, and I s immediately felt a great sense of um, identification with, with Madeleine, as we call her Madeline, because she was living in a house in Paris that was covered with binds with, with um, uh, some nuns. I was living with two older people who had a bunch of kids when, we, when our parents were away. I thought, oh, I'm, I am Madeleine. Like, you know, Flaubert, Madame Bovary, c'est moi. Madame Madeleine, c'est moi. My brother and cousins, though, were crazy about uh, cowboy, uh, comic books. That was the thing that they, they loved the, the most, and these were among um, some of their, their favorites. So at some point, um, while my parents were in New York, they came to, to visit because when they left um, Haiti, they left on a tourist visa and overstayed their visa. They were undocumented, and at some point they had to return to Haiti to, to, get, to get their papers and then they discovered our, our sort of our reading and, and sourced it. But at 12 years old, I was, um, my papers came and it was time to leave Haiti, leave my aunt and uncle and to, to move to New York. And um, having read with my brothers these cowboy books um, all, this, all these years, my, to my, it was my great shock that your president was a cowboy. <laughs> um, and, and this was 1981. And the other thing that, um, and sort of like the way 
things work linguistically. It was, it was my uncle my, our whole life, when he knew we were going to the United States, kept saying, you know, you have, to, you have to try not to do drugs. Like, don't do drugs, don't do drugs. And when I got to Brooklyn, every corner there was a drugstore. And it was very, very confusing. This was my, um, my, my passport picture. Again, I'm still wearing that bow from birth. It's, it's still on top of my head. So um, coming to New York meant um, for a lot of young people, and it's still something that happens to young people, our separation was not unique. It was something that, that families sometimes have to do, that, that, that they have no choice um, to do because you have a safe place to leave your child and then eventually when you're ready, we, you, you get reunited. So my two younger brothers, and we were, we were really into florals at that point and, and plaid, um, but my two, that my two youngest brothers were born in the States and suddenly we had to, we had to create a family together. Um, we were lucky that our coming together was, was seamless, but there've been so many, I've heard so many stories over time that reconstructing a family that's been separated for eight years, and it's a part of sometimes of the immigration story that you don't hear as much, whether the separation was a sacrifice that someone made willingly or was there was a forced separation. It's very difficult at times to, to bring a family back together. There was a, a young woman I know who told me a story when I was touring Breath Eyes Memory. She said that her, um, her mom left uh, just the same way that my parents left. You know, for me, when my mom was leaving, they, I was brought to the airport. I thought I was leaving, and then I had to be, you know, pulled off her her body. And my friend, though, they didn't tell her that her mom was leaving. And and then when she got when she her mom left because they wanted to, you know, spare her this trauma. And when her mom left, she was told, "Your mom is Lord Bordeaux. And in Creole, Lord Bordeaux can mean. You mean it can mean that someone has traveled, has gone abroad, it also mean that they're on the other side of the river. It could mean that they've also died. And she said finally when she was reunited with her parents after many years, she couldn't really believe that those were her parents. So there is a lot of lingering trauma in that reunions, and luckily for us, we, we didn't have that. Some of you who have come from you know, immigrant families, you will recognize the plastic on the <laughs> on the on the chairs when we moved um, when my we moved from my from our house though um, to go to another place I was like this is a brand new couch so but um, this is us on 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 Sundays at church and this is me and my my parents and my parents um, were very ambivalent to say the least about me. Um, becoming a, a writer, but eventually came to terms with it. So one of the first things I wrote um, was, this is my first, they, they updated the picture, but this was my first piece of writing um, for a paper called New Youth Connections. And it was about my first day in the United States. And one of the things that, um, I was awed by, you know, I think sometimes, you know, immigration can be like going into a time machine, and I guess the time machine is the 
is the airplane. Um, there's a writer, Asoto Saint, who's Haitian American, who said that he said he sort of he lost his childhood in the air between Port-au-Prince and New York City. Um, and um, so I wrote about that, but. What I wrote, what, what was striking most to me, uh, most memorable about my day in the United States was the escalator. Like I, my mind was blown by the escalator. <laughs> um, so, and then I graduated, I wrote this and then graduated high school. That's my high school graduation picture. And then when I started, um, thinking about writing, like you could tell I was really into the Elvis hair. Uh, um, so I, but I wanted to share this because I really, be, be, becoming a writer was something that I knew I wanted to do even when I was reading Madeline, but as a child of immigrants, and, the, and I was amazed too that in the conversation that I had with the young people today, some of them are still wrestling with that idea of doing what you think you want to do, but also what your parents would love for you to do. Um, and so I was going to do economics. <laughs> so that's what, and then, but I was corny. Look at my saying, clouds and rainbows are part of the sky too. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so then I um, graduated from college, Barnard College, Columbia University. Oh, there's some Barnard ladies here. Yay, Barnard. And wrote my first novel, Breath Eyes Memory. And Breath Eyes Memory was a I came out of that essay, that, that first, it came out of writing that first, my arrival essay. Um, and I remember finishing that and thinking, oh, it would be really wonderful to say more about that experience. But I, you know, I hadn't lived much, so I decided, okay, I'll, I'll just, I want to write a story where I make up, where it's a little girl with similar experiences as me, but not exactly me. And so that's really, that was the source of the book, and I kept writing it after that essay. I kept building onto it and building onto it. And then I wrote a couple of other books. <laughs> but the, one of the most, um, for me, though, when people always ask, what's your favorite book? Um, sometimes I'll say the one I haven't written yet, you know. But this one is definitely my, my um, it's the book I felt like if I wrote one book, I would want it to be this book, which is Brother, I'm Dying, which goes back to the story, to all these these things that I've just told you are in that book, but also it's a book that I felt like I was forced to write um, after my uncle, who was 81 years old, um, came to the US um, after there had been some trouble in his neighborhood in Haiti, um, was detained by immigration, his medication was taken away, he, was, uh, he fell sick at an immigration hearing, and was accused of the medic at the prison where the hearing was, the detention center of faking his illness. And he died five days later, chained to a hospital bed in Miami um, in the prison ward of the hospital. So I wrote, I wrote the book in that same, at the same time that my father was sick with pulmonary fibrosis. So I felt like this book was a gift to, to them. And, um, and also an advocacy tool because when the book was published, I, I got to go 
talk about medical um, treatment for people in detention before the Congress. I, uh, there was a piece on 60 Minutes about it. So that was a way for me as I was even growing as a writer and if you come from an immigrant family, you, re, you sometimes question the usefulness of, of your, it's like maybe I would have served the world better as a doctor and you And so in that moment, writing that book um, and having it used as not just an advocacy tool, but now they use it with new doctors who are coming um, with interns in our community, read it and I go and speak to them every year. We've been doing that for, um, almost uh, 10 years now where we go, what I speak to them about, what, you know, what if someone is in distress, how do you, so, um, so I was hoping, this is the book that I was hoping also they would use to teach people at, you know, in immigration that the person in front of you is not a number, but a human being. But I also, I also write for children, these are my, um, my, my children's books, but, um, and my most recent is inspired by my daughter, who loves hair, as you can see. <laughs> and, um, and actually, I, I, I always think that my children are going to ask me for royalties at some point at, for, the, for the children's books, because they'll say something that they think is silly, and then we, we, it ends up being a story. So this, this uh, inspired my, this is my daughter, Leila, and, and she and my older daughter, Mira, um, inspired this children's book my mommy medicine, which is about sick days and silly things that we do um, when, we're, when we're homesick with our, with, with our kids. So, and my children ask me this too, and I'm often asked um, why I write. So I write for my family and these um, sweet, sweet kids. I write for the next generation of my family but I also write to tell a larger, a larger story about a journey, about a journey in Haiti. Um, Haiti, and I mentioned that there's, this is Haitian history, um, Haitian Heritage Month in the United States, um, is sometimes so misunderstood and, um, and and stigmatized, and, and often I find that a lot of people, um, even people in my family who grew up here, do not understand the full, uh, the, the full story of Haiti. It's complex, it's painful sometimes, but it's, a, it's also a beautiful story of a, a place that's born out of, of revolution, that's been certainly punished for its audacity at a time where a black republic was menacing. It remains to sort of the way the world works, the sort of the hierarchies, the, the, the white supremacy of the time. So I write also as part, like I feel like every character embodies that story. I write to tell, for, to, to, for people to also be exposed to the arts of Haiti, to our storytelling, to our music, to our, to our, to our visual arts of which we have uh, so much. And I wanted to, um, so storytelling especially, like as I mentioned, I feel like the stories I was told, the, my, the storytellers of my family were my writing teachers. And sometimes when I was growing up, I was told stories that I didn't even understand why I was told them 
until I suddenly had to, had to live that story. And, and one of them is one that I remind myself of all the time, and I'm gonna, I'll share it with you. And it's a story that when I was growing up, often a lot of folk tales, a lot of these stories were about mothers, but I was told this one single story about uh, fathers that ended up being in my book, Brother, I'm Dying. And at that moment when I was writing, when I was writing that book and my uncle had died, who was a second father to me in immigration custody, and my father had died of pulmonary fibrosis, and I, and I looked up it with, and I realized in the way that stories sort of live and vibrate in us sometimes at the right moment, I realized why I was told this story. So it's titled, It Is Not Our Way to Let Our Grief Silence Us. Grandma Melina once told a story about a daughter whose father had died. The daughter loved her father so much that her heart was shattered into a hundred pieces. When it came time to plan for the jubilant country wake, which was once held the night before all funerals, the daughter wanted no part of it and ordered that it not be held. Tifi, daughter, said one of the wise old women from the daughter's village, please let the people rejoice at your father's wake tonight before they cry at his funeral tomorrow. There will be no rejoicing, answered the daughter. Why would I ever rejoice again when my father is dead? Tifi insisted the old woman, please let the wake be held. Your father is now in the land of the ancestors, the land beneath the waters. It is not our way to let our grief silence us. Knowing that the old woman had the gift that the ancestors grant to only a few of us of being able to journey between the living and the dead, the daughter said to the old woman, I will allow the wake to be held if only you go to the land beneath the waters and bring my father back. The old woman walked to the nearest river and slipped into the waters. And a few hours later, she reemerged and walked straight to the daughter's house. Kote papam? Where's my father? asked the daughter. Tifi, said the old woman. I am back from beneath the waters, deep into the bowels of the earth. There were some wide and narrow roads, and I took them. There were many hills and mountains, and I climbed them. There were hamlets and villages, towns and cities, and I passed through them too. And finally, I reached it, the land of the ancestors, the city of the dead. Did you see my father? asked the daughter. Tifi, I saw so many people there, I couldn't even tell you, said the old woman. All my loved ones were there, but did you see my father? Tifi, answered the old woman. I looked and I looked amongst all those people until I found your father. Koteli. Where is he? asked the daughter. I have come to take you to the land of the living, I told your father. Your daughter's heart is broken and she says she cannot live without you. What did he say to that? asked the daughter. I am so touched that my daughter wants me to return, he said. But my home is now in the land of the ancestors and the city of the dead. Tell my daughter from me que... Les mouns vivants, mouns vivants, les mouns mourir, mouns mourir. When one is alive, one is alive. When one is dead, one is dead. The old woman then pulled from her pocket 
a set of dentures that the father had religiously worn when he was still among the living and had taken with him into the land of the dead. Your father sent you this, said the old woman, so that you might believe that I really saw him and accept what he said. The daughter took the false teeth in her hands and looked at them with great sadness, but also with a new sense of courage. As my father wishes, so it shall be, she said. We will have the wake to honor him, rejoice and celebrate his life. We will sing, we will dance, we will eat, but most importantly, we will continue to tell our stories, for it is not our way to let our grief silence us. So I write because of stories like this. Writing is a conversation, I believe, with nature, with the, with the, with the world as it is and the world as we would like it to be. It's also a conversation with the past where food and history merge. For some of you um, who may not know, this is subjumu, for example, um, which is, um, we, for, for, for us, uh, for Haitians, Independence Day is, is January 1st. And subjumu is something that we eat to celebrate our independence because in the past we were not allowed to eat it. So even through food, there is a conversation um, with the past. Writing, as uh, Nikki Giovanni says here, is a conversation with reading, a dialogue with thinking. And I often write to find out what I'm thinking. And I, I think one of the great advantages of being a writer is that um, you find out, you get to find out first what happens in the story <laughs> before other people, other people find out. And I've always taken this great Toni Morrison advice, like if there's a story you wanna write that hasn't been written, that you would write it. And I thought I would sneak in that picture of the two of us taken by Jill Cremins. <laughs> That's, that was actually the first time I, I met Ms. Ms. Morrison. I write also because I am an immigrant and the children of immigrants and because this I carry with me almost like if I had tattoos, I would tattoo it on myself um, because it is so true that there is no agony like bearing an untold story inside of you. Um, I was talking to uh, one of the writers I was talking to this afternoon. We were talking about that, that burden sometimes that as people from marginalized communities, we feel like we don't want to add to how our, we don't want to add negative stories to how our community is represented or we don't want to, we don't want to speak out of turn. We don't want to speak, you know, air dirty laundry, but that, that too becomes uh, an agony bearing untold stories. And the stories will be, will be told. I think they, there are stories sometimes that I don't want to tell that haunt me so much that, that they're like, I must be told. All right, so some of you, all of you must know this quote from um, Joan Didion, we tell ourselves stories in order to live, but I believe we also tell ourselves stories in order to die. Um, this article, which I hardly, highly recommend if you're able to, to read it, is about the 40th anniversary of Marilyn Robinson's um, housekeeping. And the author, um, Jesse Jobsinska, Stephen writes, um, we tell ourselves stories in order to live, 
but this idea is too often invoked as a kind of celebration and rehabilitation of literature rather than a simple statement and fact. We delude ourselves in order to live. I believe the novelist's vocation is to cast illusions, not delusions, she says. We tell ourselves stories in order, we also tell ourselves stories in order to die. So when my mom was um, sick, she had these cassettes that she narrated um, stories and into and sometimes they were you know fun stories sometimes they were like um so and so owes me money and <laughs> and then um but other times they were like don't wear open toe shoes to my funeral um and then i i realized through a gradual um listening of those that they were she was gradually coming to terms with what was happening because she started out with, well, you know, we're all going to die, she would say, and then she would say, I'm not dying today or tomorrow, and it would continue like that. And and as she was going through, as I was going through this journey with her, with the books and the doctors, I was also reading um, Audre Lorde's cancer journals. And she, and after Lorde's uh, mastectomy, when she couldn't write, she would use cassettes um, and, and was wrestling with similar things as my mother and, and Lord wrote in, like in one of the cassettes, she, she said, I don't want this to be a record of grieving only. I don't want this to be a record of tears. And then I realized both um, she and my mother wanted their cassettes to be a record of their lives um, as much as a record of death. And for the last year, we've been, all of us through this journey now, of death, I was watching uh, the news uh, before. I always try to watch local news where I am, and so in case I don't want to, something happens in the town that I don't know about. But the local news tends to be less local these days, and they were talking about um, a million people dying of COVID, like of reaching this um, this this marker, and um, and I think it's it's dealing with grief, whether it's in small portions or in large portions, we realize the enormity of it. Um, is it, as uh, Sylvia Plath wrote in Lady Lazarus, is death, or is dying an art like everything else, especially when someone very close to us um, is, is dying? So these fast, you know, the past few months, I have found myself wondering how to mourn. Um, what songs should we sing? What prayers should we recite? What kind of altars should we build? What spirit should we evoke? When mourning has become something to be done at a distance, not being able to fully and openly mourn somehow felt like a dereliction of duty for final rites, the vigils and wakes, the home visits, burials, and repasts are not only about comforting the living, they're also about assuring the dead a smooth transition and guaranteed rest. I have, coming from a, a, a culture in which death and life was sort of always in proximity, I've always found comfort in the performance aspect of mourning, which I have witnessed um, my whole life. So a few months before my mom died, I was asked to write uh, a, a prayer um, about it, and I'm going to speed through this before I read the prayer. Um, so this was 
um, I was also trying to document the biggest way I thought I could document my mom's trans um, transition was through her feet. So whenever we went to doctors, I took photographs of my mother's feet um, because part of it was I sort of when you're listening to terrible news, you tend to look down. And then, so I started, I, I said, I'm going to do a kind of history of my mother's feet. And these feet, the, in Creole, there's an expression called pied poudre, um, which means, like, uh, means you have travel dust, like you've been to a lot of places, but also your, it's powdered feet, like dusty feet, but your feet can, can also get dusty. Um, if you're pied à terre, like if you're without shoes, then your sort of your situation is not so good. So I started um, documenting my pictures with my mother's feet, and this is with her. The first one was with her, just her feet, and then I started doing her with the caretakers with the with their feet, and this is my feet with her feet, <laughs> and this is on the very last day of her life with my hands touching her, her feet. Um, and I remember just trying in a way to construct grief with a kind of um, concretizing grief, which I think a lot of people who have lacked rituals these past um, couple, these past few months, you sort of um, have to, how do I make it concrete? And I've had to return again and again to my mother's stories, to my mother's storytelling, to deal with these, these, new, these new griefs. And so this is one of the things that you realize and when you're doing this, um, sort of the, this, the storytelling of grief, going to sort of the happy storytelling to this other kind of story, is the, the range of like the, the fullness of this journey. Soon after my mother died, um, I was talking to a writer friend who told me that she had a couple of stories in mind and a kind of storytelling she felt she would only be able to write after her mother died. And I was wondering what these stories would be for me now when um, this I was reminded of, of this occurrence and ended up writing um, a prayer. So a few months after my mother died, I was asked to write a prayer for the panel I was participating in at the Penn World Voices International Writers Festival in New York. I had procrastinated for as long as I could until the morning when I was supposed to send in the prayer so it could be printed in a small book that could be distributed at the event. I grew up in houses where we prayed all the time. First at my minister uncles in Haiti, then with my parents and brothers in Brooklyn. Yet it was hard for me to write a prayer. This is in part because I believe prayers are meant to be private since they reflect our most vital desires. I used to tell myself that writing, storytelling is a kind of prayer that silence can be prayer, that even children are prayers, living and breathing prayers, that love is the most powerful prayer of all. Yet the prayer I ended up writing was inspired by my mother. It is the prayer I imagined her saying in her head during their final moments on this earth. And it's a prayer that I will read to you. 
before we go to questions. My mother had a singular and wicked sense of humor, which is hard to convey in translation. Her type of humor was mostly for intimates of people she'd quickly made into intimates. Her jokes were best understood by people who already knew how she spoke, who would read her body language and listen to the nuances in her speech. When my mother was occasionally hospitalized, most of the nurses who took care of her were Haitian. My mother was hesitant to ask too much of them, but she would joke with them in Creole. To the one nurse who always had trouble drawing her blood, she would say something like, it's too bad you're not like those people on TV who could just put their teeth on people's necks and draw their blood. <laughs> um, maybe there's still some blood on my neck. To the one who had to extract feces from her rectum when she was impacted, she said, for your sake, my sister, I wish I had swallowed a big piece of gold earlier today. Listening to her cackle, even as her care became more humiliating, made me realize how hard she was trying to keep a part of herself intact. Even though it was a side she rarely made public, the nurses would laugh and continue their work, and my mother would laugh between occasional groans of pain as if she never wanted the joke to end. At my father's funeral, my mother kept whispering something under her breath. Finally, at the graveside, I leaned over to hear what she was saying. She was muttering over and over, jusqu'à ce que la mort nous sépare, jusqu'à ce que la mort nous sépare, until death do us part, until death do us part. This moved me so much that I asked her what she was saying and why she was saying that. And she told me that she was reminding my father that their contract had been terminated She said she wanted him to know that she had only signed up until one of them was dead <laughs> and that she didn't want him to come back and bother her in her dreams. My mother, I thought, would have never been funny in English. Even though she'd lived in the United States for decades, her English sounded like a newly arrived immigrant's English. Part of it was shyness. The other part was her lack of practice. There was not much English spoken in the factories where she worked. Every time they had come from, everyone there had come from someplace else. She was embarrassed to speak English in other settings as well. She worried that she wouldn't be understood. I gave her a few more English words than she might have said in this prayer. I tried to bring in her humor too. Her humor too. I called it my mother's prayer, a new sky. This is the prayer. I'm going to close with the prayer. Dear Lord, Please let this be my final prayer, my very final prayer. Let there be no more need for me to ask anything else of you in this shaken but troubled, troubled but beautiful earth. Let this be the last time I think of you before we see each other face to face, light to light or wind to wind, sky to sky, or however it will be. I can't wait. I can't wait to see what I will be, what colors, what shade, what light, what pillar, what rainbow, what moonbow, what sunbow, what glory, or what new sky. Let me now accept all of this as I've already accepted this world and all that it has been. And please let the world go on. Let the sun rise and set. Let the rain still fall quiet and soft at times and hard at other times. 
Let the oceans still war as they always have. Let the world go on as it always has so that my children will know that only my spark is dimmed and not the entire world. Let, the, let my children remember me, both the good and bad of me. Let them not forget one thing about me that could help them be one better woman and three better men. Please let the pain racking my body stop. Let it stop right now. Let my lungs stop aching. Let my breath stop sounding like hammers in my ear. Let me not say anything hateful at this final hour. Please make my daughter stop crying. Let it be a sunny day when they bury me. And please let my children find the $500 I left in the tin can in the freezer. <laughs> I should have told them about that when I still could. Don't let them throw out my good blender either. All it needs is a new blade. Okay, maybe you can make my children forget all the times I spanked them. There might not be much to be gained from that. Let them say nice things about me at my funeral, things I have never heard them say before, things I would never imagine them even thinking about me, things that have nothing to do with being spanked. Don't let them go on talking for too long at the service, though. Let them shut up when it's time. And let them know that I have always been praying for them like this silently in my head, and that if it's at all possible, I will never stop praying for them like this silently from somewhere else. Please remind them that none of us have all the time we think we have in this troubled but beautiful world. Let them not bury me in some old ugly dress. Guide them to my good wig. I should have told them where that was too. Let them not be talked out of a closed coffin. I now only want you to see my face. And please, please let my children survive this. Let them survive this, for I will not be just their mother now. I will not be the some story they tell. I will remain their light pillar, their rainbow, their moon bows, their glory, their new sky. Thank you. Given that that was a really incredible sort of bit of biography tonight, Everything Inside, which is the new book of stories, comes from about a decade of work, actually. And so reading it's kind of interesting. Being the book nerd that I am, I went to the back to look at where those stories were published and if they'd been established before, and I realized that it actually had been 10 years. What was the, can you talk about putting that book together? Because there's probably a lot of work to draw from. How did you decide what went into that book and what was the organizing principle for it? Well, I wanted, when I was putting that together, I didn't want to do sort of a collection of like all the stories I had. Um, I wanted to do a, stories that all of sort of rotated around this issue of love and love of country, love of family. And actually um, one of the epigraphs is from Nikki Giovanni. We love because love has, love, love is such, we love because it's one, a true adventure. Um, I'm paraphrasing. Um, so, yeah, it's all the stories were, have that some kind of relationship to love and to diaspora um, in some way. And, and I wanted to, to have a range going from, I think, yeah, from about, I think 2013 is the oldest story to like the last one, Without Inspection, which was published almost like the year before the publication of the book. 
Right, because they go that way, and the New Yorker was that mm -hmm. one that was published. Mm -hmm. um, there's one question from the audience here. Um, I've heard before that every writer imagines a specific reader of one. To whom do you write your books and stories? Who is your specific individual reader? Mm -hmm. um, I try, and I was, uh, we're talking about this with the writers earlier. I try not to think of reader a reader outside of myself when I'm writing. I, I just imagine that I'm just writing it for me. Maybe the sort of the younger a woman when I was younger, the younger version of me, because I, I think imagining where the story might go is a little bit intimidating. Um, so if, if I were imagining, like, if I were like, I had a time machine, I could see, oh, I'm coming to Portland Arts and Lectures to meet all these readers. It might be like, you would all be in the room with me while I was writing. Right. So that would be a little bit too crowded. You wouldn't want to just sit here on stage. <laughs> we could just get a writing table for you here. Yeah, and we could just watch exactly. In it would be. So I think part of the freedom of that experience is to kind of forget that there'll be other people at you know in the other end at the same time knowing you know I also I'm always carrying with me this Haitian proverb it says words have wings words have feet like the words will find their own way out into the world but in the moment that you're writing and like I think that the moment of of creation you kind of have to just imagine, like, be alone with that and feel, to feel fully free. There's a couple of questions about Creole, which I think was your first language and the language spoken um, in the homes you lived in. It, this question is about how, how did speaking Creole as your first language help you find out or put music in English? And maybe I'm curious, too, just what your relationship to Creole is as an artist. You obviously have chosen to write in English for your career here in the United States. Do you write in Creole or French or in, what's your relationship artistically to those languages? Well, I, um, I grew up speaking Creole at home I, and um, in school, but when I was in school, when I was younger, um, in Haiti, school was in, in French. So um, I have not written in Creole, but it wasn't necessarily a choice, it sort of was, Coming at 12, I learned English and I started writing um, in English. It's kind of how it flowed. I've done um, some radio plays in Creole of my stories, but I have not directly written in Creole. But I, I, for me, Creole is always definitely interwoven into um, my stories, like, um, but also is behind the language that you know the characters speak often. Um, you know, the characters, especially in, in this book, in the, the first story, Dosas, where you have you know, sort of different generations of, of uh, Haitians and Haitian Americans in one space, and they, they, they're, they mix Creole and English, and often Creole is also a very beautiful and very uh, visual language that I feel like is in my English writing as well, they sort of behind it. And sometimes I see myself as a translator of what the, the characters are saying. But, I, but we have, I think, a lot of models for it in you know, um, immigrant literature. Like, like who, there's a lot of writers who do it, like Sandra Cisneros, or, or the, there's, there's a lot of people who preceded me with 
their own languages and that you're reading them, but you can, you can hear the Spanish or you can hear uh, the other language there. That's, that's what I hope that is happening in my English. Yeah, but it's clear from the question that that's what this reader was feeling too, for sure. Um, you know, we, you spent a lot of time with youth. We have a lot of youth here. And so we'd just like to finish with what kind of advice would you give young writers or writers who are beginning out um, or writers at any stage of their career? Yeah, um, I think it's, I mean, it sounds sometimes obvious, but it's so important to remind yourself too that your story matters. Um, and just make a little bit of, make room for it. Um, we don't often talk about, like people expect sometimes like, you know, the like a muse to just appear before you and you take dictation. Sometimes writing is, is hard work. Sometimes it requires um, a kind of discipline that you know musicians practice, right? Or other people in other disciplines um, practice. So, so um, your story matters. Um, it's important to, to tell your voice, you know, to tell your story, trust your voice, trust that you have something to say and, um, and read a lot because I always think that um, all the mentors we need, sometimes we are looking for living mentors that, it, they, that it's hard to get to them, but all the mentors you need are in the library. And I used to do this thing for myself that I would, like I would say for a summer, I'm gonna read all this writer's work from the f beginning to the end to kind of see what their journey was like, what I can learn from them. So I would recommend that too. Um, but trust your trust your own voice. Trust that you have a story to tell, and and make yourself like, you know. I, I remember there was something. Um, someone was talking about a writer visiting, who uh, who said who came to give a talk about um, writing, and walked out and said, "Okay, go home and write the end." <laughs> so, <laughs> so I would say, "Go home and write." <laughs> Uh, well, with that directive, <laughs> thank you all for being here. Thank you for being here. It's been wonderful to see you all. Have a wonderful evening. That was Edwidge Dantica from a Portlots and Lectures event in May 2022. The 2023-24 season of Portland Arts and Lectures has been announced. Speakers include Zadie Smith, Mary Beard, David Gran, Charles Yu, and Amy Nezukumotatil. To learn more about the season and how to join us at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall for five inspiring evenings, visit literary-arts.org. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Liguri and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to the Literary Arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.